I don't believe that we should ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. We can't take them violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is, by some sly roundabout way, introduce <laughs> something they can't stop. Welcome to another edition of Noted Bitcoin Podcast. I'm Bitstein, otherwise known as Michael Goldstein, uh, as always with my co-host Pierre Richard. How are you doing, Pierre? Doing well. Thanks, Michael. And today we have a special guest, Alex Gladstein, uh, Chief, is a Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation and uh, the Oslo Freedom Forum. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So, uh, Alex, I mean, first off, can you tell the audience um, a little bit about um, the organizations that you're a part of? Yeah, so I'm willing to bet I'm the first human rights activist that's been on your show. Um, I'm someone who's been working at the Human Rights Foundation since 2007. We are an organization that actually focuses on uh, the political problem of authoritarianism. So we study societies where power is not evenly distributed, where power is not decentralized, where power is actually quite centralized, uh, either in a dictatorship, a military junta, uh, kingdom, uh, tyranny, uh, some sort of uh, illegitimate power in our eyes. Um, and we study how these systems work, what are their weaknesses, what are their strengths, how can we help people uh, living under these societies who are dissidents or free thinkers, entrepreneurs, etc. How can we help expand their work and strengthen their work? And how can we kind of sound the global alarm on authoritarianism when it it's quite clear that the world's establishment doesn't care. Um, authoritarianism is always the elephant in the room. Whenever you look at any sort of UN sustainable development goals or any sort of like large world conversation, um, the dictators are honestly usually the people who get to make up the rules. So the Human Rights Foundation exists to try and shake things up a little bit. So we have you on today to talk about the dictatorship in Bitcoin, right? Where everything's run by Adam Back at Blockstream. And we, North Koreans, as we're called, uh, have to deal with uh, this dictatorship, this authoritarian rule. Well, um, the politics of Bitcoin aside for the moment, uh, the reason why I'm so fascinated in Bitcoin is because it actually resembles so much of what I see in, in political science. Um, you know, in political science, again, you have this idea that you can have centralized power, right? You can have a dictatorship. Um, you don't need to deal with private property or courts or the media. You can do however many transactions per second you want, right? It's easy. It's centralized. But long term, it's not better than distributed governance. Decentralized governance is better. Whether you care about peace, no two liberal democracies have ever fought each other in the history of humanity. It's like the only ironclad law of political science. Um, whether you care about health, innovation, uh, patents, uh, inventions, science, math, etc. Whatever you care about uh, most likely is better in a society that has distributed governance. And then the question is, you know, is it the same in, in computer science with, with Bitcoin? And to me, the way I like to look at Bitcoin from, from my activist perspective is as a decentralized money network. So the most important thing to me about Bitcoin is censorship resistance. The most important thing to me about Bitcoin is that I can send money to somebody else in this world and that transaction can't be censored. And that's completely revolutionary. 
I think, too, is the fact that uh, no authoritarian government can just decide that there ought to be more units uh, in the supply that they can give to themselves first uh, at the expense of the less politically connected. Totally. And I go ahead, Pierre, do you want to? Yeah, well, I just wanted to add this uh, little current event tidbit with what's going on in Venezuela, where basically they are devaluing the currency and it is to benefit this totalitarian regime. Yeah, I was going to say that um, when I usually I speak to people about Bitcoin, I, I, I try to remind them it's it's probably not something that's so urgent or necessary for their lives right now if they're living in San Francisco or London or, or Tokyo. Um, but it's very, very important for people who live under uh, kind of one of two different societies. One would be, of course, the hyperinflationary, hyperinflationary regime that you mentioned, whether it's in Venezuela, Somaliland, Zimbabwe, um, so many different countries. Of course, Turkey, Syria, you're seeing a lot of countries where the currency uh, has been devalued by the government of printing more money. But the other country that the other type of society that, that Bitcoin would be very valuable in is in a surveillance state where all of your monetary transactions are surveilled or censorable. So, for example, in China today, nearly all uh, financial interactions done using mobile phones with like WePay or Alipay. And they're becoming a cashless society that way. Right. So at the end of the day, for, for me as a human rights activist, what I'm trying to think about is what kind of cashless society do we want? <laughs> and I think we're either going to go the way of, you know, WeChat or Bitcoin. So definitely sign me up for the Bitcoin way. So in that regard, does does it concern you, for example, like China banned, according to, you know, what we can read in the West, uh, Bitcoin trading? Um, and then the other aspect of it is people getting, you know, behind this Chinese firewall, whether they have access to the rest of the Internet or not, can impair their ability to have access to Bitcoin. Um, and I know that Blockstream satellite is kind of a way to route around that. But what, what are your thoughts on on those issues where Bitcoin's censorship resistance gets tested? Well, obviously, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in helping people get access to Bitcoin. Um I just had this conversation the other day, actually, about an even more remote information environment, North Korea. So, um, you know, in China, there are ways around it at the moment. It's still hard. Like the, the state has banned VPNs. You have to be very creative. You have to have potentially like a device like the satellite device you mentioned. Um, but once you get that, you, 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 can, you can transact in Bitcoin. In a place like North Korea, what's really interesting is that the, the government is... Uh, stealing cryptocurrency from exchanges in South Korea. Like basically what happens is if you're a very young person in North Korea and you show any aptitude for mathematics or science, you basically get kidnapped from your parents and turned into a, like a, like a cyber super hacker. Um, this, is, this is how you grow up in your life and you only learn about this. So the cyber hacking uh, abilities of the North Korean government are very high. So they've actually been able to hack cryptocurrency exchanges in South Korea and other countries. And of course they take that money and then they sell it immediately. They, they don't hold on to it. Um, from what we can tell, they sell it immediately for whatever uh, you know goods and services they need, and then they continue to, to run their repressive state. But the question was, could you flip the script? Could you actually, could you smuggle um, Bitcoin send receive devices into, into North Korea? And could you amplify the existing black market? And could people start engaging in different kinds of arbitrage? Uh, this, this is a very interesting idea to me. And obviously, you know, in China, to a greater aspect, you're seeing a lot of this where you're seeing people evade capital controls, you're seeing people uh, trying to hold on to their money in Bitcoin. Um, so I mean, I, I think it's something we should pay attention to. Obviously, uh, a device like that 
in a place like that would probably have like a very uh, stripped down UX and like very, very specialized, you know, needs. What do you think such a device would look like in practice? Well, I mean, theoretically, it doesn't really have to do that much volume, right? Um, there, there are some very interesting uh, kind of low transmission volume devices, uh, obviously, that are out there. Um, there's, you know, look, I've heard people, I've heard people talk about uh, different frequencies, which you could send and receive uh, Bitcoin on. Um, it's, it's my belief that a team of skilled engineers could put together a device that wouldn't cost very much money, um, that would fit in the bottom of a pack of cigarettes and could be smuggled into North Korea and would allow people to send and receive Bitcoin. I think that that's a completely solvable problem. I think we could do that. The, the other avenue is what Rodolfo Novak is working on with OpenDime, where basically you load the Bitcoins onto a physical device and there's no way to get them off without uh, destroying the device or, you know, marking it in some way. And that way people could be uh, handing these little USB sticks around as as money on the black market. Right. Okay. Well, which is funny. In the last three days, we've already received... So we were at um, DEF CON, uh, my organization, uh, last week, and we have an exhibit called Flash Drives for Freedom. So, you know, this is where we collect USB sticks and people send them to the address at flashdrivesforfreedom.org. And then we, we, we wipe them and then we send them into North Korea loaded up with like films and books and movies and outside content. Um, well, what's really interesting to me is, is the open dime approach. And, you know, we're already sending in all these flash drives. People use them. They're fairly ubiquitous in North Korea. Flash drives are not illegal in North Korea. It's how people trade wedding photos and things like that. Um, but if you could start trading, of course, currency uh, on these drives, um, I think then, then things start getting a little interesting. I mean, North Korea faced some of the same hyperinflationary issues as some of these other states where about 10 years ago, you know, you had to have so much physical cash to buy anything like a giant amount. So the regime ended up just saying, okay, we're going to like get rid of that money and bring in a new money. And everybody, of course, was was very frustrated. And that drove actually a lot of defections at the time. Um, well, as, as we've seen, governments that operate like that tend to do it again. So, you know, it's happening again and currency continues to get inflated. So this idea that you mentioned with, with Open Diamond and Bitcoin being traded on, on flash drives is something that I think you'll see a lot more experimentation with, especially in, in low information environments. Yeah, especially the fact that it's it's done in a, a rather trustless way, um, since the the device itself is uh, tamper resistant. In fact, like you you can only spend it, like you said, by by tampering with the device. So the person trading it, no one, no one except the person who finally spends it has actual access to the private keys. Um, so it really is it's it's bringing a sort of physical cash back to this you know cashless Bitcoin vision. Absolutely no, and I, look, I think just in general. Um, on this point, the less you trust your government, I think the more interesting Bitcoin is, right? Uh, you know, and, you know, jokes aside, you know, people who live in the United States or France or um, Chile or South Korea, I mean, generally speaking, these are democratic governments uh, where there's rule of law and, and you know, you can kind of trust your banking system. The government's not going to, generally speaking, come and steal all your money. But most humans on this planet don't live in a country like that. So there's about 4 billion people on Earth that live under a legitimately authoritarian government. And for these people, having an escape valve, having a money that, that they can control, that they can send and receive without censorship, and where they can kind of just pick up their bags and leave, this is a revolutionary thing for these people. So we've talked uh, before about how 
you know, there's the technological side, but there's also the social side to trying to uh, solve these issues. I, I think you called it something like the wetware, you know, where these, you have, you have to program the squishy robots uh, walking around as well. But with, with Bitcoin, in order to, you know, uh, participate in the system, you do have to have a, you know, uh, reasonable expectation that you're able to secure your keys. And in repressive environments uh, without the rule of law, um, you're under a much greater threat of explicit violence, um, likely on a, on a daily basis even. So uh, what what kind of things do you guys think about in terms of, uh, you know, if you want to get, you want to get, uh, you know, Bitcoins into, you know, North Korea or Venezuela or other uh, repressive uh, jurisdictions in the world, what else uh, can be done to help secure these Bitcoins in those areas? Yeah. Um, well, I think even if we're not looking at it from a normative approach, if we're just looking at, for example, local Bitcoins, the exchange, and you're just you're seeing something, for example, like number of transactions per day that Venezuela, the Bolivars are in their top five, you know, only out, outranked by the dollar, the ruble, the Nigerian currency and the pound. I mean, that shows you something for, for a country that's relatively small that that the demand is there. So I, I don't think it's like whether or not uh, we want people in these countries to use it. They will, mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that they they figured out how to use encryption technology. I mean, I, I think all humans are equally um, intelligent, and, and they'll figure these things out. But I do think the production and research being done in terms of like wallet privacy is very important. Um, I, I know that there's some new wallet uh, wallets out there that I'm sure you all are aware of that uh, that can talk in great detail more than I can, but um, that that do things like encrypted Bitcoin transactions um, that, that do mix, that have mixing technology that allows, uh, it's making it harder for the government to see, you know, where your coins came from, or where you send them to. I think this area is really important for uh, the kind of examples that you speak of in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the countries where government won't hesitate to just use violence um, to seize your stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause there's also even just the problem of, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if Bitcoin, was gaining adoption um, in one of these places, even if the government doesn't suspect that, like have have specific knowledge that you had it, um, just as Bitcoin is a sort of universal bug bounty with regards to computer security, because now every computer might have some Bitcoins in a place like that or in a place anywhere, mm -hmm. the more Bitcoin gets adopted, the more you can assume that any person might have knowledge as to where Bitcoin private keys might be. Right. And I don't think it's just the private keys. I think it's also the mining equipment. I think what you're seeing, it's really interesting. I have a Venezuelan friend and she was telling me that the government literally sits there sometimes uh, and, and, and looks at the electric uh, grid and looks at who's using what. And if you're using too much energy or using like an, an, you know, an aberration amount, they'll come and check it out. And if you're mining, they'll not only arrest you, but they'll take your equipment and start using it. So the thing is, of course, Bitcoin's agnostic, right? It doesn't care who's using it, a dictator, a, a, a freedom fighter, it doesn't care, right? So look, a lot of governments, including bad ones, are are mining Bitcoin, right? Or going to mine Bitcoin if they're smart. I mean, I've always thought about how it, it would make sense for a country that has a lot of sunlight and a lot of desert area, how smart it would be for them to just, you know, build this... Um, massive solar grid that you always see in these talks. You know how you always see that somebody's got this um, map of the Sahara Desert and they say, oh, you could power the entire EU from like this little piece in Algeria. 
what if the Algerians just built like a massive Bitcoin mining operation there that was entirely solar powered? I mean, you know, then they can sell that value elsewhere. So again, some of the things that, that are exciting about Bitcoin aren't necessarily going to be used immediately for good. I think we have to be quite clear about that, right? Um, and the other, the other area I wanted to dive into also was how repressive regimes um, are using enterprise blockchains or private blockchains. Uh, I think this is really important to talk about because I think a lot of people in the cryptocurrency blockchain space, um, you know, inevitably get sucked into uh, a kind of frenzied conversation where, you know, let's just sprinkle the world blockchain on something and it becomes positive and the sort of the morals of what we're doing kind of get a little lost. So for example, uh, IBM um, is very, very excited about its new project to build a, a blockchain smart city with Saudi Arabia. So in most industries, when you do business with the Saudis who are literally crucifying people and, you know, arresting all the women drivers, uh, you kind of have to sweep that under the rug. That's like a problem. But for whatever reason in the blockchain industry, IBM was happy to tweet out how it's working with the Saudis and nobody cared, right? So I think that there's like, you know, it's all about this, this, this drive that you see towards people to be willing to accept conference invitations, go to, you know, cryptocurrency events in places like Riyadh and Moscow and Beijing. And I think there's just a little bit of a moment there where you kind of have to ask yourself, what would Satoshi do? You know, is, is this something <laughs> that, that is in, in line with the, with the philosophy of Bitcoin? Uh, and I, I really don't think dictatorship and authoritarianism is. So actually, I just wanted to peep in and just to respect Godwin's law, uh, point out that IBM was help, helping Hitler out with the Holocaust. So they have a long history of not exactly being on the right side of yeah. human rights. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to mention that, but I, I did know that, that fact. Um, but no, it's more, but like, so IBM's always going to try and do whatever it can, but it's more about the, the wider community. You know, why is there no backlash? Like, I understand why people are skeptical about for example, some of the stuff going on in Puerto Rico. I mean, I, that, that's quite clear. But arguably, what's much worse is what's going on in, in Saudi Arabia and China and, and Russia and, you know, the United Arab Emirates. And no one seems to really care. What do you what do you all think about that? Uh, well, that's definitely an interesting on, on sort of a, you know, a, a broader, like higher level uh, look at this. People were so quick to come up with every uh, reason why uh, Bitcoin is evil in some way. Um, whether it's it's the energy usage or whether it's uh, you know just because you know you, you get the Paul Krugmans who are just upset that they're not going to have uh, their, their opinions are no no longer going to uh, matter uh, with with blockchain uh, there doesn't seem to be as much uh, spoken about you know the the downsides of it and what what kind of costs and even if uh, the project worked out how do you how you imagine which I personally don't think uh, pretty much any of them are are useful. But um, just talking about, you know, what are the what are the societal costs of actually realizing that vision? Well, I, I also just think it goes back to the, the fact that at least look, I, I'm now speaking at a lot of these events. I interact with a lot of people, quote unquote, in the blockchain space, and a lot of them just don't have a deep understanding of. They just think Bitcoin's like another one of the coins. Like they don't understand that it's a decentralized money network and the other things are just projects that, you know, may or may not be successful. Um, so I think the education of explaining to people why Bitcoin matters, how it works, um, what, why, is, why is an ownerless money system important? 
uh, why is censorship resistance important? I, I think these these things will all contribute to this because all of these projects that the Chinese government, for example, is building, I mean, they're all permissioned, they're all private, they're all single point of control. And what's crazy is to look at a graph of the number of patents in the blockchain space. So there are more patents being filed in China in the blockchain space than in any other country combined, um, at least as of 2017. And what's really interesting is that, or perhaps terrifying is that, um, is that they're using, they're going to use these blockchains to create national systems of control, right? So it's not just the whole like WeChat storing your behavior and location data uh, and communications data. It's also going to be creating a national cryptocurrency, you know, so maybe it's a digital yuan or what have you. And that becomes just a slightly easier way for the regime uh, to track everybody's financial transactions. Right now, it's kind of scattered, right? So it's like you have Alipay, and WePay, you have all these different cities and municipalities all scattered across China. This idea that there's like one um, social credit score system is, is a myth. Like it's all scattered. I mean, that's the goal, but they're not there yet. Some people describe it as kind of Kafka-esque before we get to Orwell. Um, and that's kind of how it is in a certain way. But they're they're going to get to Orwell. That's that's their goal. And one of the things they'll need is a is a very easy to reference, very easy to use, uh, unifying uh, currency. And and the people are ready for it. Meaning uh, they've been primed for it. Uh, the millennials in China, who who are being interviewed, and you can read some of this. There's some great reporting in the Financial Times on this. They're kind of like I mean, there was one quote where the, the young woman said something like you know, I don't know whether we're going to a futuristic society or whether we're building a cage for ourselves. And, and I think that that was very powerful for me because, you know, they know on some deep level that it's wrong, that everything that they do is being given to the government for surveillance purposes, but it's so convenient. It's so tantalizingly convenient to have everything on one app and to be able to trust the government and trust all of your friends that they do it anyway. So that is just this future that I, I, I really hope doesn't come to our society or to any other country and I think to prevent that from happening, we have to build uh, scalable decentralized technology, um, starting with money. So uh, aren't we arguably already there in the U.S. with like Google and uh, with Apple? Well, Apple less so to an extent, but especially Facebook mm -hmm. and then, of course, like the NSA and all of that. We, we are. The difference is human rights, right? So I, I don't think the people working at Facebook are any morally different than the people who work at Tencent, which makes WeChat. I mean, I think they're probably the same. Um, the problem is in China, there, is, there, aren't, there aren't human rights. There are no checks or balances. There's no free media. There's no watchdog groups. There's no EFF. There's no Bitcoin advocacy organizations. I mean, you know, this is, this is like uh, the big difference is human rights. So here, we do have technology that's capable of doing what the Chinese government wants to do, um, but the American people uh, at the moment are not letting them do it, I guess is the simple way of saying it. Which is to say that, it, you know, don't think it could never happen to you, right? I, I think, I guess right. I'd want to leave that on the table. But just in terms of, for example, like if, if, if we're investigating a, a crime here in the U.S., the procedures for gathering evidence are going to be very different than what would happen in China. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and right. So like you had the whole, what was interesting was the whole, uh, and then a few years ago with the San Bernardino shooter, right. And, and the whole uh, media kerfuffle about, you know, should um, Apple hand the phone over to the government or not, you know, um, ultimately I know, I, I guess they, they, they used some other foreign country to do it, but, um, and Apple, I guess didn't relinquish, but, and people were celebrating Tim Cook for this. And it was crazy to me because Apple has for years been just giving user data to the Chinese Communist Party, like for years. And and yet the American media just apparently doesn't care. 
they're willing to like lionize Apple over this one thing. But meanwhile, like halfway around the world, uh, they've been like part and parcel in this uh, horrifying construction of a totalitarian surveillance state. Well, is it their view that it's like, you know, we're worried about what goes on here in the U.S. And like if the Chinese don't want this to happen to them, it's kind of on them to uh, to protect themselves or or to have their, you know, their own culture reflected in their technology. Yeah. And I think that's a slippery. That's kind of where we get to like the moral relativism stuff where it's like, oh, it's their culture. You know, oh, you know. You know, it was actually really funny. There was an interview with one of the one of the Chinese uh, leaders, and he was talking about. Well, he's like, I think it's a mistake when we talk about decentralization and blockchain. Um, we have to have blockchain with Chinese characteristics, and 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 that that blockchain's not going to, you know, that that blockchain's going to be more about disintermediation. But it, it, you can't get rid of the center, is what he said. Literally, that's what his quote said. You can't get rid of the center. So when we talk about Some all this disintermediation, <laughs> there. <laughs> Well, I think he was trying to like get his way, you know, kind of dig his way out of the interview. Get, get but, some um, buzzwords in, and yeah, I mean, look, they are going to try and build blockchains that have centers, right? And I think blockchains that have centers are not great blockchains. Um, I don't know what to tell you, uh, but but again, yeah, it's this like slippery slope where oh well, you know, the Chinese they'll they'll deal with Apple on their terms and they'll make blockchains on their terms and they'll do their thing, and we kind of have to let them be. Um, I think that's like fundamentally broken perspective because. Not only because there exists a Chinese democracy in Taiwan that has freedoms and rule of law and, you know, people by and large don't have to use WeChat if they don't want. Um, and there's lots of checks and balances against the executive and, and it's not a not a police state. Um, but also that, you know, that wh why wouldn't why wouldn't the American population or, or the media here care about those things? It's kind of weird. I mean, I know I get it like on some base level, humans are human and we care about our families and communities that are closest to us first. But there's got to be a better way to trigger empathy on this stuff. Yeah. Well, another thing too is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Nassim Taleb's concept of the intolerant minority, where basically a subset that demands something that the other people are kind of okay with will be able to wield influence over the entire system. So I mean, the example he talks about is how you go into a convenience store and, uh, like all of the all of the junk food has like the kosher label on it, and uh, it's basically everyone is fine with eating kosher Lay's chips, but like this very small minority of people are not okay with not having kosher Lay's chips or whatever. So it's able to do that. As far as like Google and China and stuff, I, I do wonder, you know, is is there something to be concerned about with uh, Google and Apple producing technologies that? have the Chinese government in mind that are kind of able to slip past the gates of the American checks and balances such that those same censorship techniques um, that they use to repress people in China start to slip into American culture and American technological usage? Look, I think you can take both sides and you can make a good argument on both sides. Um, I just happen to have uh, much more belief in one argument. Uh, one argument would be Yes, uh, Google and Facebook should do whatever they can to get into China and build their own systems to provide the Chinese people at least something a little different. But I'm of the belief, and this is the other side of the argument, is that those systems will be on the Chinese dictatorship's terms. They will be censored. Um, and, I, you know, I, I just I haven't really seen a lot of evidence that the Chinese government is going to allow in Western companies to do things in a way that's going to chip away at their own power. I think these things are going to be done on their own terms. Um, so I'd be very skeptical about, um, and I'd be 
sad to see uh, American companies uh, do this. I mean, they've done it before. They built the Great Firewall, right? Cisco was one of the key companies that helped build the Great Firewall. Where now we're well beyond the Great Firewall, and you've got um, a lot of companies that are helping to to continue to cut the Chinese people off from the rest of the world, and 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 you know build this horrifying surveillance state. So you know, again, I think to take the conversation in a slightly different direction, you know, this leaves us in an interesting area with regard to the Bitcoin uh, industry, right? To the mining industry, especially. Because it's a little different, right? So, I mean, when you talk about some of the the reasons why uh, Bitcoin was so immediately popular, uh, you know, in in China in terms of mining, I mean, some of the reasons are that it was easy to get cheap electricity, right? You could kind of commit corruption and get the local guy at the power plant to let you have a little extra electricity, right? So this sort of spread organically, right, throughout China. I mean, what what are you all seeing um, in in the Bitcoin mining industry? I mean, are we, you know, from my perspective, are, are we going to continue to centralize in China or, or is there a move to sort of get that, get some of that stuff distributed around the world? So I think that it's definitely already getting more distributed around the world. And right now, like the, the biggest issue is probably the concentration in terms of manufacturing rather than mining itself with Bitmain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I my, my conspiracy theory read on what happened is that the Chinese thought that mining Bitcoins allowed you to control the Bitcoin network. And that's kind of what they were trying to to get accomplished in 2017. And they kind of realized, oh, wait, no, having 90% of the hash rate here really is not relevant to controlling the Bitcoin network. Um, And then they stopped caring and started like not subsidizing the electricity costs anymore. And then we started seeing miners like moving, physically moving their equipment to Canada uh, and to other parts of the world. So um, I definitely think it's it, the, the pendulum is swinging the other direction. And I don't know if my conspiracy theory has any value to it at all, but that's just my my view on what's going on. It's a fun story, at least. It does seem to be, yeah, that does seem to be reasonable. I, I think we, we are observing some of that, right? You're seeing a lot of people move. Uh, out. I mean, one thing, uh, you know, spending some time in Taiwan, was, which was interesting, is for years, the Chinese have been basically offering Taiwanese engineers three times the salary to pick up their families and go to China, right? Um, now you're seeing uh, people fleeing uh, China, developers, miners, whatever, because it's just so restrictive. I mean, Xi Jinping's police state is, is a difficult thing to run a business under. So a lot of these folks are leaving. Where are they going to go? I mean, a lot of them are going to go to Taiwan. So Taiwan has an interesting opportunity here to to not only be like a free country, a democratic country, but potentially also a hub for innovation in, in the Bitcoin uh, and, and cryptocurrency space. Yeah, my, my hope is that they're able to somehow get that Bitcoin trading going back on in China, because I think that like once you're once you have a on ramp out of fiat and into Bitcoin, uh, then you have a lot more options. Mm-hmm. And local Bitcoins just doesn't have as much liquidity as uh, an actual online exchange. But right. I, don't, I don't know if, if if they brought it back, it would just all be under government surveillance and government control anyway. Well, the writing's on the wall in terms of, you know, when Jack Ma says Bitcoin is a bubble, but blockchain's for real. You know, he said that two months ago. I mean, the writing's on the wall in China in terms of they're trying to steer away from Bitcoin and get people onto cryptocurrency that they can surveil and censor and freeze. Right. So. that is what they are doing right now, whether or not they're going to be successful. You know, I'm not sure. 
But, you know, in the same way that the Bitcoin resembles the Internet in a lot of ways, I mean, the Chinese government was reasonably successful in cutting themselves off from the Internet and creating their own Internet. And that and that swamp is what bred all of these uh, like weird apps like WeChat, right? It's like a separate lagoon disconnected from the, the Internet ocean, right? So I, I would be concerned that the same thing could happen with Bitcoin. Yeah, with with the caveat that like, as, as Saifedean has pointed out, the Chinese were on the silver standard when the rest of the world was going on the gold <laughs> standard. And that caused problems for them economically because silver was demonetizing and losing value versus gold. And I could see the same sort of thing happen with Bitcoin, essentially. Right now, they have these massive dollar reserves, but they don't have any Bitcoin reserves. And so if the if the dollar loses value or gets replaced entirely by Bitcoin, uh, then all of their, their you know, government, U- U.S. government treasury debt is basically worthless. Um, and they don't really have... Uh, a way to compete with Bitcoin on a monetary level, just like I don't think any other fiat currency does, even in in democratic countries. Well, in that scenario of uh, you know increasing Bitcoin value, uh, I think there's two things I wanted to mention. One was, uh, you know, when I was in Southeast Asia, I, I talked to a few people who worked for some smaller governments uh, in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, etc. I have this feeling that the the idea that like one of these governments is going to start accumulating one two percent of their reserves in Bitcoin is maybe not so far fetched based on my conversations. Um, that 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 might be something that a smaller government tries to do before China, right? Try and kind of get the advantage, get the first mover advantage there. So uh, that's something I saw. But the second thing is like, look, I'm just speaking as someone who works at a nonprofit and does fundraising. You know, if you're if you think that possibility uh, it, where Bitcoin becomes extremely valuable it is a is a strong possibility, is a weak possibility, is any possibility at all, whatever your percentage chance is in your head, let's say you think it's 10% possible, then then I really do think you as a as a, as a nonprofit leader should try and accumulate a small amount of Bitcoin for your for the causes that you care about. Like I think this is a, a way of looking at it, kind of like planting a seed um, for a future tree. I think this would be smart for people to start doing for their communities, for their schools, for whatever. Um, and I think this is something that I, I'm, I'm looking at with regard to these, especially these countries where uh, the financial system is completely controlled by the government, right? Um, having some sort of like store of value uh, that you can keep on your own gives you that financial freedom. And that's, that's pretty amazing. We haven't really had that before. I'll give you like a little micro story I heard from a, a friend of mine who's a She's one of Afghanistan's first female technology CEOs, and she uh, actually this was in 2014, actually. But she was she she was needing to pay her employees, young women, uh, and the uncles and brothers and husbands of the young women wouldn't allow them to open bank accounts. Um, wasn't necessarily illegal, but but there was a lot of strong social pressure uh, for women to not have bank accounts, right? Because the men want to control everything there, and some software like PayPal was sanctioned, right? Because it's Afghanistan. So they ended up paying the young women on Bit- with Bitcoin, uh, just with you know, hot wallets on their phones, right? But it gave them an opportunity to own the money. So they would they would come home and, you know, the, the husband wouldn't know anything about where the money was, you know. So the woman could actually control the money. And one of these young women actually had to flee Afghanistan, right? So she uh, was a victim of uh, political violence, had to leave, went on 
foot as a refugee through Iran, Turkey, ended up settling in Germany. And luckily enough, uh, you know, her Bitcoin had, had accumulated in value quite a bit. And she ended up using it to start her new life in Germany. So I think this is a good example of how it can actually provide uh, financial freedom for somebody uh, in, a, in, a, in a scenario where, where they can't have it right now. So again, another sort of revolutionary aspect of Bitcoin in my, in my view. And it is great, you know, in that regard, since it's a, you know, global currency, uh, you know, investing, investing in Bitcoin to any degree anywhere in the world has some marginal impact on uh, taking on socialist governments all over the world. I mean, or any government that's just printing more money uh, or, like I mentioned, creating a, a, a centralized financial system where all of your transactions will be, you know, frozen um, will be uh, surveilled, censorable. So something I wanted to talk to you about is, um, you know, what is what is the alternative look like, right? So if we have the vision for the centralized future, which is essentially what's happening in China, right? Um, where you have centralized WeChat, centralized cryptocurrencies, you know, what is the what is the decentralized future look like where we have the ability to, to have Bitcoin widespread, um, where I where I can ostensibly use it, right? Or a derivative of it uh, on a daily basis. I mean, what does that look like to you two? Uh, imagine a digital boot denying you financial tra transactions forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that has to change, at least in the US, is that uh, using Bitcoin to make payments shouldn't be a taxable event. So uh, right now you've got to essentially track all of your information so that then you can file your capital gains taxes. Mm -hmm. So I think that there, there has to be some sort of legislative change there um, until Bitcoin replaces the dollar entirely. And then it's kind of a moot point. Uh, Are there countries but, where that you're aware of where the legislation is different and, and it's treated exclusively as currency? Yeah. So uh, I think that in a lot of countries in Europe, they treat it as a good where basically okay. you pay sales taxes, you pay VAT on it when mm -hmm. you buy it or sell it, but you don't pay capital gains per se. Got it. And then I think that some countries even have it like where there's a VAT exemption for it and uh, it's not even taxed at all. And it's just, it works as a, a money there. Um, but if we think about where, where a lot of people who own Bitcoins are and, you know, where people have had access to Coinbase and all this is like a lot of it is in the U.S. And essentially like the tax code forces them to hold more than they otherwise would, which arguably is like a good thing for from an investment perspective. But from a letting people make their own financial decisions perspective, uh, it's, it's onerous. But I guess what I mean is like in the next three to five years, um, what you know, why would you, why would you actually spend your Bitcoin even in micro amounts, if if you had this expectation that it would be uh, val more well, valuable in the future, unless you live in, again, a dictatorship or a surveillance yeah. state. Those are places that I think people are already, you know, we can see they're already using it, right, as a currency. But in, in advanced democracies, I guess, is my question. The, the way I see it is that if you have owned Bitcoins for five mm -hmm. years and you're sitting on this massive appreciation of mm -hmm. wealth and you essentially... Whether it's like the lady in Af from Afghanistan in uh, Germany who you know wants to start her new life there, um, same thing. You know, obviously not in as dramatic of a fashion, but if you want to uh, spend your your hard earned bitcoins <laughs> from years of holding it during through the bear market and seeing its value appreciate, um, 
it makes sense from like a wealth effect perspective of now you feel wealthier. So now you can go out and, and buy a house or go on a vacation. Uh, and really, I think what it is, is it's like you, uh, you know, flippantly, like you only live once, but really like you do have to live in the present moment. And do you want to uh, live like an ascetic monk who doesn't spend money on anything? Right. Uh, or do you want to go splurge and buy yourself a Lambo or anything in between? And I, I speak that I, I think that there's like a, a cohort of people who bought in 2011, 2012, 2013, uh, who are now like in that position where it makes sense for them to sell some of their Bitcoins to rebalance. Um, but in terms of someone who's buying today and they're buying with the expectation of it increasing in value in 10 years, then yeah, they'll be in a position to go out and spend their Bitcoins in 10 years. But in the meantime, uh, they're, they're not. And I, I think that's, that's, that's okay, right? Uh, and I think that they should have the infrastructure in place so that in 10 years, when they do want to go buy something, that they can have it be a, a kind of an easy UX rather than having to go sell right. it on an exchange. Well, and that's, that's, there, there's an urgency in terms of, you know, this centralized uh, sort of digital authoritarianism that, that I've been talking about, uh, it's it's coming, you know, like Tencent's making inroads in the United States. A lot of people use WeChat here. I mean, decentralized technology needs to be either performant better, performant equal, about as good, or like at least as convenient uh, to compete because people just by and large don't really care about privacy, generally speaking. So if we want to create uh, an alternative to um, the digital authoritarian model, you know, we have to have decentralized technology that's like not only scales, but also is, is usable and desirable to use, right? So I, I think it's important to dwell on like what what advantages it would have vis-a-vis like a WeChat type system for the average person or merchant, right? So I understand that I, I, ideally, yeah, if a merchant didn't have to pay fees or have to pay a very small fee to sell their wares, yeah, that would be that would be enough for them to not want to use a centralized system, right? Where they have to pay somebody in the middle. Um, but I think getting into this would be important just because it's not just, you know, I'm just, I'm just not, in, I'm not just interested in the future of Bitcoin. I'm interested in the future of, of humans too. And, and I think Bitcoin's development and, and other things you can build on top of it as a decentralized network need to really be uh, sped up or else we're just not going to, we're not going to have a viable alternative to, to what's coming or what's here, right? Depending on who you are and where you live. Yeah, and something else I saw about, I think it was Tencent, where essentially they extend you a line of credit yeah. uh, from using their payments app. And whereas with Bitcoin, it's the opposite. Like you've got to buy, you got to go buy Bitcoins. You got to buy in. And it's basically you are putting an upfront deposit into this payment system rather than having a large company, you know, tell you, hey, you can go spend $1,000 and pay us back later. Uh, it's going to be very challenging to compete on those terms. Well, it is, except I'm sure there'll be, look, I mean, I think this is going to spawn this new industry of there's going to be people doing all sorts of stuff on top, right? So whether it's insurance for your, your keys that you lost or whatever, th there's going to be companies that obviously that you're already seeing now popping up to do that. Um, but as long as that base layer is secure and, and censorship resistant, uh, I, I think that that gives me confidence that, that we would, that we'd have something that would be better, right? Um, but I, I just think it, it just in general, like this idea that can I have on my phone, um, you know, can I transact, can I pay bills? Can I, can I do things that would otherwise be surveillable, but can I, you know, or not just surveillable, but also seizable or stoppable, 
um, in a way where where it would be built on Bitcoin, I guess, question. And like, how, how far away is that? Or is that even just not not in the cards? I think it's in the cards. Like, I think that we're going to have uh, a lightning version of Venmo and a lightning version mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, a chat app where you can send lightning payments to your contacts uh, easily. And it's just a matter of getting the fundamentals right. Uh, and I think that the lightning people have been uh, pretty insistent on ha getting the basics right so yeah. that it is decentralized uh, rather than rushing ahead and, you know, creating something semi-centralized that w would be censorable. But it's it's come to a point of maturity where it is, you know, there are people building on top of lightning now. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah, exciting. Cool we stuff. see this with the uh, the Bitcoin protocol, you know, the base base protocol as well, um, where you know things go very slowly uh, for the purposes of making sure you don't let in certain types of vulnerabilities that lead to these you know dystopians that you speak of. Um, so, for instance, you know this is a heavy component of the arguments for keeping the. Um, block size limit now the block weight limit at a you know a, well it's still technically like the one megabyte but now with the block weight limit it's it's effectively four megabytes um, thanks to SegWit but part of the reason for that was um, seeing an attack vector of um, too large of a blocks uh, centralizing validation nodes uh, to the point where it's basically the miners just doing it and clearly. Right. As we see, the, the miners are not, they're, they're self-interested individuals that don't necessarily have the same interests as the rest of the network. Um, and thus, uh, you have to worry about that. Um, point being that, you know, it, it takes getting those fundamentals uh, very right, because as you were saying earlier, the centralized solution is always, it's, it's very tempting and it's so easy. Well, and yeah, and I think people shouldn't forget that the value proposition of Bitcoin is not speed or scale, right? It's censorship resistance, right? So I, I mean, I see a lot of people grappling over this right now because, you know, what if that's the case um, and the, the, the solutions that we, you, we're talking about now are going to lag behind the decentralized ones by, by obviously so many years, right? Um, how will we, you know, how will we get into adoption, right? How will we allow people to have this stuff? and use it in a way that it can protect their liberties, right? Um, and I think the whole privacy thing is important to point out, uh, I think at least in the community that I, I'm of, where people don't know a whole lot about Bitcoin that, um, sure, yeah, Bitcoin is a public ledger, but there's all kinds of amazing stuff that you can use to to obscure your identity to, to prevent yourself from being identified in, in a broad-based surveillance scheme, right? So uh, maybe not if the FBI is tracking you down as an individual. Yeah, maybe that'll be something that they can actually, um, maybe even is made easier for them that you're using Bitcoin. But generally speaking, if a government is going to do like broad-based illegal surveillance, I think that this stuff not only will help with censorship resistance, but but also with privacy too. I don't know if you want to comment on that, even with Lightning, right? Yeah, well, I think I think Lightning will be uh, a very good for privacy. I think at the base layer, I think the base layer is in a place where um, we're going to see privacy improvements, um, but I tend to think it's a bit unrealistic to imagine that we can create this thing that remains decentralized, has good monetary policy, and has this sort of, you know, uh, perfect 
privacy of just like everything right. is completely anonymous. I think that's untenable, but um, I, I do think that there's there's hope on on the base layer to be able to add in uh, various techniques for obfuscating things like coin join, et cetera. But then once you add in uh, lightning on the layer two, since you're not having to broadcast all transactions and you're able to route these payments between nodes um, using onion routing, um, so it's not there's there's limited information that the transactions right. you are sending even you know give to uh, the nodes that are uh, moving it. I think with that we're going to see some very interesting uh, privacy techniques to be able to you know obfuscate that. So you the the powers that be in this case might be able to know that like you have X amount of bitcoins, but they don't know all the in-between of what you were doing while it was in the, the lightning arena. Right. And I, I think this is a, kind of something that you get from a lot of critics, right? And they're like, well, what do you want? Some, you know, world of anarchy where, <laughs> you know, the, the government has no power. And uh, yes. the reality is, it'll, <laughs> well, you, you, you might want that, but the reality is it'll probably be something like, well, you either have the Chinese model or you have a model where like, you know, by building on top of Bitcoin, we preserve some rights and freedoms. Okay. I mean, I don't think that, as you say, we can't have a system that has it all or, you know, when it comes to all the different engineering problems, like the idea that you're going to have something that's perfectly private and perfectly scales and all this stuff, like probably not going to happen. But but there is an opportunity to create something here um, that does preserve some of our freedoms, uh, that preserves censorship resistance, that preserves some privacy. And I think that's so important for uh, communities of investors, especially uh, and do-gooders to look at. I mean, right now they're being guided by the sustainable development goals if you're doing impact investing right which which you know have birthed to like uh let's say clean tech and ed tech and health tech and all these things that like literally massive pension funds public funds uh, corporate arms you know spend hundreds of billions of trillions of dollars on because they're like well why don't we make money and do good at the same time um but the words you know in the sdgs which are used as the north star for these things the words uh democracy is mentioned zero times in the entire text Human rights is mentioned like once. Civil liberties, none. Journalism, none. Corruption, like once. So this is a, like an authoritarian document, literally written by, among others, Assad's Syria. Literally, no joke. Um, they, they were on the working group that created the SDGs. Uh, you know, a bunch of authoritarians created this document, and they created it so that investors would invest to build a world that wouldn't threaten their power, right? So I do think we need this other area of like impact investing where people can can invest in exciting new technologies that are scaling decentralized technology um, that can help preserve our rights and freedoms. And I think this is a very interesting area that I hope to see more more growth in. Maybe it's called something like democracy tech or or decentralized tech or something. But, but I think there needs to be uh, another uh, arrow in the quiver for people who are looking to do good. Something I'm just thinking as we're saying this is you know, also, you know, where, where are these governments getting the funds to be able to, uh, you know, invest in all of this dystopian technology in the first place? And one of the major things is just the fact that we've, we've lived in the age of central banking. And so the nation state has been able to grow in a, a much bigger way than perhaps would have been possible if they did not have that ability to just print money. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same, you know, and, and at the same time, uh, there's complicity among open and free governments, right? Uh, that that are that violate their people's rights less, but are open to working with these other governments that are 
totally horrible and authoritarian and dictatorial. So you'll have, um, for example, pension funds or public funds from European countries uh, doing very little to, to support the rights and freedoms that make them so special, right? This is like one of the frustrations I have with, have you guys heard of the effective altruism movement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the effective altruism movement was created by, you know, largely people who grew up in like um, Oxford, San Francisco, places that have human rights and civil liberties, right? And you look at what they're telling people to invest in and to donate to and to give away in charity. And you look at their top 10 list on like GiveWell, which is like a common EA resource, right? Nothing on civil liberties, just nothing, nothing. And it's like, well, what do you think that, um, that these things aren't important? Or uh, it's kind of like the bigotry of low expectations thing. Oh, well, we should just give, we should just give resources to communities in Africa and Asia um, because, uh, you know, they, they can't really have civil liberties. I mean, that's such an absurd position to have. It should be so central. I, I think decentralized power should be the base layer for everything. So, you know, you're looking at the EA community. They and so many others should be looking more carefully about, you know, how do we build actual societies that have uh, civil liberties and rights and freedoms? And the idea that this is some Western concept is absurd. Just look at the map. For every Cuba, there's a Costa Rica, right? For every Estonia, there's a Russia. For every South Korea, there's a North Korea. Um, for every uh, Saudi Arabia, there's a there's a burgeoning Tunisian democracy. Um, for every culture in the world, there is a, a free and a, a free country and a dictatorship. This isn't some Western concept. Um, so I, I think that we need to be really careful about our giving abroad and thinking about what we support. Um, and this extends to foreign policy too. I mean, what are your views on? For example, the U.S. government, you know, the U.S. State Department and USAID, I mean, and Bitcoin, like, should there be education? Sh should our government be funding education about Bitcoin in these countries? Like, should there be, you know, courses? Should people be learning how to code? I mean, you know how much money they have, right? I mean, shouldn't a small percentage of that be going to explore this? I mean, my, my take is that they should give the money back to the taxpayers. Uh, but of <laughs> right. course, and, and I think actually the, <laughs> I think the government would be the, the last people I'd want people, uh, the last people I'd want teaching other people about Bitcoin, because given their incompetency, incompetency elsewhere, I'd hope that, you know, uh, non-government agencies would be better at teaching people how to competently use Bitcoin. Um but uh, you definitely like the, there's a sort of like uh, give a man a fish versus teach him how to fish, um, which is, as you were saying, like, I think a lot of these, you know, like uh, I tell people all the time, even just like the concept of sound money is not really out of reach to any average person. It's 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 actually quite intuitive, I think, to people to understand that, you know, if you have uh, if you're if you're trying to save uh, a currency and then someone pumps more units into it, then your currency goes down in value and that's not good for you. So that's like a very intuitive thing. And I do think that, you know, we see, we see how much uh, cell phones have proliferated around the world. It does make sense to me that, you know, people really are capable of uh, making use of these technologies if the right technologies are there for them. So uh, yeah, instead of, you know, just merely, you know, handing them, uh, you know, I, whatever these effective altruist uh, organizations are doing. Like mosquito also, nets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the malaria nets, just like handing them the nets, giving them, uh, thinking instead in terms of giving people the actual uh, technology they can use to build their own infrastructure. 
and uh, it would be very right. Good. But that requires uh, materials in local languages about, for example, Bitcoin yeah. or decentralized networks or whatever. Right. So, so there's something for the State Department to do. I do. I do trust them to be able to translate things well. They have a lot of people yeah. who know different languages. So uh, if anyone from the State Department is listening, please contact me, and I can get you in touch with uh, good open source uh, developers that you can help. Uh, translate documentation and is there like a, a resource online for like educational materials about Bitcoin in like a bunch of different languages like 10 20 30 languages do you all know of that is that something that that we should be created uh, so we'll have an announcement on a very soon uh, noted episode okay about such a thing very so, cool well yes. let me know uh, you know look the people who get most excited about this again are people who live in uh, authoritarian societies, and there are a lot of them, it's half the world. So when I talk to somebody in San Francisco about unstoppable money, they're kind of like, eh, whatever. When I talk to someone, uh, you know, from uh, North Korea about unstoppable money, they're like, that's very interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> right. So again, it's, it's like the less, the worst, the worst your government, uh, the more interesting Bitcoin is to you. And I, and I think that's fair. Um, and I think that's where you're going to see a lot of adoption. So as someone who works at the Human Rights Foundation and studies authoritarianism, I think this is going to just continue to pop up on my radar. And it's the reason why I've gotten so interested in it. Um, and, and I think, you know, hopefully there'll be a lot more opportunity to, to engage uh, in this area. And I think that there's a lot of like organic growth on the ground as well. Uh, one of our fans who listens in, he is a he does 3D graphics and he does it all online and he works out of Egypt and he gets paid in Bitcoin from abroad. Yeah. And uh, just from the value going up, he's been able to evangelize it to, you know, his local community and whatnot. And so there's even just on a like grassroots level, uh, it's growing. Very cool. So you're optimistic in general about, you know, Bitcoin being able to serve as this uh, base layer for, for a decentralized community of technologies that can hopefully, uh, challenge the digital authoritarian state is that a, is that a yes or a no we're we're permables here at noted <laughs> podcast I, i'd say it's a qualified i've never had a negative thought about bitcoin like B bitcoin can't do everything uh, correct and so there's like it, there's importance in terms of things like tor that are is yes. important um and then also like encrypted messaging whatever it may be uh so Bitcoin can't like do everything, but I think that there is something where essentially, okay, here, here's, here would be my like argument for the, for how Bitcoin can compete with the authoritarian panopticon, yeah. which is that it appeals to people's self-interest in the sense yeah. that even if you don't value your privacy or you, you don't value, you know, the like the having not not having a turnkey authoritarian solution for you know everyone knowing everything about your life you still do value increasing your wealth and mm -hmm. i think that bitcoin's deflationary nature uh, lends itself to that and that's kind of its killer app and that any centralized competing solution ultimately falls prey to inflation and so does not have that same advantage so much so, in fact, that even if you don't care about human rights at all, you should care about human rights in the case of how can you increase people's uh, adoption of Bitcoin for the purposes of uh, 
their own self-interest of defending themselves against these authoritarian governments, because by doing so, you can increase your wealth, uh, your own wealth. Yeah, we can be realists about it. Um, people are probably not going to adopt Bitcoin because of quote unquote human rights. They'll adopt it, as you say, in their own self-interest. But the fact is that, again, it's like unstoppable censorship resistant money. And that's just a very useful thing to have when you're trying to challenge authoritarianism. Absolutely. So whether it's intentional or not, I think uh, the anti-authoritarian community and the pro-Bitcoin community hopefully will grow closer and closer together in the future. Also, uh, something to think about, too, is that each of these each of these authoritarian uh you know, regimes, they offer stress testing on the Bitcoin system or a, a new attack vector. Um, so even just for increasing the, the strength of Bitcoin in able to defend, having Bitcoin in more of these places getting more tested by these regimes allows us to find new ways to, uh, you know, make Bitcoin more resilient and in fact, more stronger uh, which is good, once again, for literally everyone involved, both the people here in our nice, comfy, you know, United States homes, as well as the people in very repressive uh, regimes. Yeah, and that speaks to its strength as a sort of an anti-fragile uh, technology, right? It, it, kind of the more you throw at it, the more you try and poke it and bring it down, the stronger it gets, um, which is something that I guess a lot of people don't understand because they keep saying it's going to die, right? And it, it continues to not die. It should have died earlier if, if they were thinking. Right. I mean, die. the funniest part is that all these governments uh, could have probably killed it at the beginning, right? And they just ignored it because they were yeah. ignorant about it, just like me and many other people. But uh, it, it never amazed, it always will amaze me how it was able to kind of grow in that way uh, and, and survive based on ignorant, uh, ignorance of other people for so long. How, how did you, uh, you know, kind of finally get into Bitcoin and recognize its place? Yeah, so I have an interesting history. Uh, I, I, I was one of these people who learned about it um, maybe in like 2014. I, I was part of this uh, festival called Ephemeral, um, which happens in the Sacramento River Delta. And some of the folks in the uh, sort of Peter Thiel's community helped start this. Um, in 2011, 12, 13, 14, uh, the Thiel Foundation was a major supporter of a lot of press freedom work like what we do at the Human Rights Foundation, the Committee to Protect Journalists. Um, so I, I, I was hanging out with a lot of the folks in that community. And one year they brought me to Ephemeral, which was really cool. It's like, it, originally it was a, a, a radical seasteading experiment, but it, it really turned into just a very interesting mix of kind of burners and uh, people who like to build things on the water, like engineers. So they built some rather impressive structures. But I remember I, I was on a, a boat, I think in 2014, um, with uh, a bunch of my friends who are now in the crypto space and Brock Pierce, actually, he was the first person who told me about Bitcoin. So I'll have to be grateful for him for, for that. Um, it didn't really spark my professional or personal interest uh, for a little while, um, for several years, actually, um, until uh, my organization started getting sponsorships from blockchain and Bitcoin companies uh, about a year and a half ago. So we started talking to Bitfury. We started talking to uh, consensus and some other companies. And uh, I was kind of like at that point, hmm, I should probably learn about the, the details of how this stuff actually works. So I really went down the rabbit hole uh, a little more than about a year ago. And it's just been a, a wild ride ever since. Awesome. Well, that concludes our conversation. It's been an hour and uh, very interesting. 
we we usually get either like the finance angle or the technology angle. Uh, we we get like the, I think the human angle gets taken for granted. No, it's been such a pleasure and a lot of fun to talk with you about the human side. Um, yeah, let's fight the Panopticon and invest in scaling Bitcoin so more people can know about it and have it. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. So I wanted to plug uh, what we have coming up. Uh, we've got a live show in New York City on September 29th. Uh, we're going to be recording it with Murad. Uh, either before or after the dinner, I'll put out a poll, see what people want to do. Uh, and then likewise in Seattle, October 27th with uh, Vijay, uh, at the real Vijay, Vijay Buyapati. Uh, and on Wednesday, December 26th at, in Austin, we're going to do a live show. I don't know that we're going to have a guest for that one. It might just be Michael and I riffing. Um, it'd be more fun if we had a guest, so right? Uh, and we also set up a noted Patreon. So if you're enjoying the show, if you find it valuable, log on to patreon.com slash noted, N-O-D-E-D, become a patron and uh, help support the podcast. Thanks. Bye. Well, let's talk about friendships for a minute. Here's how you know if someone's your friend. A, you can tell them bad news. And they'll listen. They won't tell you why, you know, you're stupid and, and why that bad thing happened to you and how something worse happened to them once and, you know, derail the whole conversation. You can actually tell them bad news and they'll listen. So that's a good thing. And then this is a weirder thing. You can tell them good news and they'll help you celebrate. And that's a really good way of deciding who you should have around you. Because if you have someone around you, you know, something good happens to you and you're kind of afraid to even admit it because, you know, God, something good happened to you. It's like you let that be known and it'll certainly be taken away. So, you know, you, you come out and you sort of tell someone half-heartedly that something good happened to you. And they, they give you a whack and then talk about, you know, so the great thing that happened to them three years ago. Or worse, the great thing that happened to someone that they knew three years ago. You know, it's like... Go away from that person. They're not helpful to you. And they're not helpful to themselves either. And so you want to surround yourself. You've got to think about this. You've got to surround yourself with people who want the best for the best part of you. You can hang around with weasels and losers that are trying to pull you down to justify the fact that they're spiraling downhill as well. And you know, the upside of that is you don't have to have any responsibility and you can all whine about how wretched life is, you know, so that's pretty attractive. But I would say it's also a me bad medium to long-term plan. And so it's, it's acceptable and desirable to try to surround yourself with people who are facilitating your development. You know, and you might say, well, I've got people around, I know them well, you know, they're, they're, they're not doing that well and, and they're, and they don't fit into that category. It's like, what's your point? What are you going to do with them exactly? If they'll, if they'll listen and cooperate with you and move towards a better future, great. If they don't pay any attention and they keep doing the same damn things over and over and they're not going anywhere and it's painful, then maybe the proper thing to do is say, you just have your misery. I'll go off and have my life. And maybe you'll wake up at some point in the future and think that's a better way of being. Because just putting up with it is, well, they call that enabling, right? You put up with that sort of behavior, you're providing tacit consent for it and even tacit approval. It's like, it's a bad idea. You have, I would say, both the right and the responsibility to surround yourself with people who are good for the best part of you.